and turn in your Bible or your phone Bible or up on the screen to Luke 5 as we continue in this series we're in Future Church. We're doing this in concert uh, with, with Park Hill and with another uh, sister church of ours, Light Church, and with Bridgetown and Reality San Francisco that started this out of a, a response to something that Tim Keller over in New York was doing. It's like, it's like this web of spirit communication. God is speaking to his church in this web of relationships in this series, Future Church. How do we interact in this cultural moment in the vision of Jesus with the world around us? How do we practice a rule of life to index towards Jesus's vision in the middle of culture? Today, we're talking about a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear. Luke 5. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I wasn't really expecting you to do the reply thing because it wasn't on the screen, but good job. About five of you. Uh, a, um, a lot of this uh, writing has like been pre-done for us by John Mark Comer, by Dave Lomas, and uh, inspired again by Tim Keller. So a lot of this that I'm going to be reading to you is, is something that has been, um, has gone out before us. And then part of this is uh, my own thoughts and what God's been speaking to me as well. And so this intro on this old dead guy, St. Arsenius the Great, and there should be a picture. Yeah, isn't he lovely? <laughs> he's a handsome guy. Uh, he's a fourth century desert father. He was born in 350 to privilege. His father was a Roman senator. He became the tutor to Caesar's family. But then... He became a follower of Jesus, and he gave away all of his wealth, gave up his job, and moved to the desert of North Africa to pray. He was one of hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus, who we now call the deserts, desert mothers and fathers. They gave us the contemplative tradition that we balance ourselves with, the contemplative and the charismatic, but they, they founded this contemplative tradition. At the time, it wasn't called the contemplative tradition. It was just called the way of Jesus. This is how people followed Jesus in their day. When Emperor Constantine legalized the Christian faith for the first time, the way moved from a persecuted minority to a political majority with like social and economic power. It became enmeshed with the empire and all sorts of evil, all sorts of wrong was done in the name of Jesus. In prophetic theater, Arsenius and many others fled to the desert. And years later, when Arsenius was asked, why did you give up your life in Rome? He said that he was praying one day and he said, Lord, lead me into the way of salvation. And he felt a voice say back to him, Arsenius, flee be silent, pray always, for these are the sources of salvation. 
In our current moment, we live in a world of noise. There are 100 billion advertisements for items and ideologies that are fighting for our attention from the moment we wake up until we lay down to sleep or just stare at our phones in the dark. On one hand, this is nothing new. Like, this is a cultural moment that has been building up to where we are right now. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Way of the Heart, writes about driving across LA in the late 70s and how every surface was covered in advertising. He said it felt like driving through a, through a dictionary. Quote, everywhere I looked, there were words trying to take my eyes from the road. They said, use me, take me, buy me, drink me, smell me, touch me, kiss me, sleep with me. Then he said, noise is a great threat to our spiritual life in the modern world. It hasn't really gotten any better since, to say the least. There's a whole world in your pocket, begging, if not commanding by invasive patterning to be paid attention to, lived in. It's right, it's right here in your pocket. Its size is deceiving. Like how could something so small have such an effect on my mind, body, and soul? Here's some really fun stats for you. The average iPhone user touches their phone 2,516 times a day, right? Not you guys, but like other people. And they're on their phone three hours and 15 minutes a day. The number is nearly twice that for millennials and Gen Z, although I'd argue there's no force so powerful as a Gen Xer or a boomer with Candy Crush in their hands. So I just wanted to offend everyone equally. Everyone gets offended equally. Some of the most brilliant minds in our generation are working insane hours to create technology that is literally designed to distract us, addict us, and then monetize our attention and sell behavior modification to advertisers. That's the thing in your phone. This is not science fiction. The data is in. Not only is the digital age and specifically social media making us miserable, it's actively making us worse people. It's well documented now that the more time you spend on social media, the more anxious you are, the more depressed you are. And here's the new finding. The meaner you become, there's a sort of desensitizing that is happening. The level of contempt, moral superiority, nitpicking at words, shaming, trolling is only increasing as the digital space expands and invades the physical world. Of course, internet meanness is a symptomatic of, of a much larger cultural trend, like it's not just your phone, it's not just the internet. Everybody. Is, is mad about something. We live in a culture of, of outrage. We're mad at somebody or something. And to clarify, I'm not saying that anger isn't legitimate. Like there are good reasons to be angry. There's legitimate evil and injustice in our world to, to stand against. Anger is our body's natural response to not getting what it thinks it needs. This can be a good thing. But let's be honest with ourselves. This can be easily, easily contorted by our flesh. Jesus warned over and over again in his teachings of the danger of anger. He said, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He saw, he did see that there is a, a place for the right kind of anger, which he put on display in the temple and with the Pharisees. 
but that much of our anger is often rooted in contempt and pride, that great human sin. And even that speaking to others in a demeaning way could lead us to, to hell. Jesus' brother James warned as well. My dear brothers and sisters, he said in James 1, 19 through 21, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Does that, does that sound like us? Does that sound like America? Quick to listen, <laughs> slow to speak, slow to anger. What's behind the outrage of our day on both sides of the culture wars? What if it's actually pain? James Baldwin, the civil rights activist and partner to MLK once said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once the hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their pain. Behind every social media rant and sporadic eruption of road rage, office outburst is a staggering amount of pain. Not just pain, but more specifically, a body of fear. Fear of the future, fear of the past, fear of our lack of control, fear of our nation, fear for our nation, fear of the other, fear of what other people might think of us, fear of what people might think of us if they actually knew who we were, or if we actually were to face the reality of ourselves, we would find nothing but shame. Fear is the most primal survival instinct in our body, designed by God to maintain life. But in a world that is suffering under the curse of sin and Satan, our bodies are overcome by fear. It becomes not a servant, but a master. We become enslaved to our fears, run by them, and they sabotage our deepest desires to grow and mature into people of love. This is where, in this moment, Jesus has something to offer you. The way of Jesus has something against and in contrast to the culture of the world, something to offer you that is truly human. Jesus' most repeated command was, do not fear. In fact, scholars argue that's the most repeated command in all of Scripture. And we're just going to like run the gamut of a lot of Scriptures right now. So buckle up, get your seatbelts on, turn the person next to you, say buckle up. Buckle up. Okay, we can do better than that. The person next to buckle up. There you go. That's a little better. He said things like this. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Or in Matthew 24, you will hear of wars, rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. Or in John, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
These are our beautiful words and beautiful promises, but Jesus is giving us more than words. His answer to fear isn't like, hey, stop that. That's not it. That's not his promise. You guys ever seen that Michael Jordan meme where he's like doing the PSA about drugs and he's like, if you're doing drugs, stop it. Like, oh, that's thanks, Michael Jordan. Uh, thanks, Jesus. Just stop that. No, his, his command comes with a practice that he actually modeled for us. Jesus shows us how to be a people of peace in a world of fear throughout all the Gospels. Again, we're going to buckle up and go through a couple of scriptures. Let's take a look. When the crowds of people who are, not, who are no doubt overwhelmed with religious and political pressure, rampant sickness, the oppression of a global superpower, and many more reasons to fear surround Jesus with a million needs and questions, Jesus always answers from a place of deep inner quiet. He's never as anxious as the crowds around him. He never like has an outburst where he's like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, he's in complete contrast to the culture around him. What, what is it that, that's fueling this inner quiet in him? Well, if you look in the scriptures, you'll often find the acts of Jesus, the moments where he's surrounded by people and he's healing and he's teaching are bookended by times alone. Again, Jesus kicks off his ministry by spending 40 days alone in the desert. Before he chose the 12, he went to be alone in the hills. After his cousin John was killed, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place. After he fed 5,000, he went up into the hills by himself. After a long night of work in the morning while the sun had not yet risen, he rose and went out to a lonely place. When the 12 returned from a teaching and healing mission, Jesus instructed them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place. After he healed a leper, Jesus withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. With the three disciples, he chose a lonely mountain as the place setting for the transfiguration. And before that fateful day where he gave himself over to be killed, before the work of the cross, he found solitude in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lonely place is actually just one word in Greek. It's eremos. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, eremos. I imagine that's like a, like a cowboy, you know, a lonely cowboy out in the desert. Eremos. Eremos. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, that's all you're going to remember now. Gosh dang it. Uh, the Eremos, the lonely place, was a core practice in Jesus' rule of life. Jesus is constantly going to the Eremos to meet with God and be with himself. This is actually our working definition of the practice of solitude and silence. If you got pens, if you got notes on your phone, whatever, this is silence and solitude, a definition. Silence and solitude is intentional time alone in the quiet, possibly in stillness, to be with ourselves and with God. This is Jesus' active answer to the outrage of his day. This is more than just escaping to do nothing for a while. Dallas Willard puts it this way. Silence is not a decision to not act at all. Although in some situations it may come to that, it is rather a decision concerning how you will act in dependence on God. When we're tempted to fall in line with the chaos of our day, of our cultural moment, God calls us to trust in his spirit which is hovering just above the chaos, bringing order where it seems impossible. 
restoring love where fear has taken hold, redefining our humanity where it has been distorted by the world. This can only happen in silence. In order to hear the truth, the compassionate voice of God through all the noise, we must take time to actually stop and listen, to listen the way that Jesus did. You guys, how many of you guys seen the movie Black Panther? Oh yeah, heck yeah, heck yeah. Okay, this is gonna be funny, but like I just saw Shang-Chi and I liked it way better. So am I black? I don't know. <laughs> I just alienated everyone. Okay, there's a scene in the movie Black Panther where, where he, uh, he, he's going to get his powers back, right? He has to drink that like purple juice thing or from the flower and he's laying in the dirt. They cover him up with the dirt and he ends up in this, this place. It's like a magical like purple land and then there's some panthers on a tree and, and then one of the panthers jumps down from the tree and it's, it's his father. And he's in this lonely place. There's like nothing for miles. And his father steps down from the tree and he begins having this conversation with his father. And his father begins reaffirming his identity to T'Challa. T'Challa, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do any more voices. (laughs) He reaffirms T'Challa's identity as king in that lonely place. Like that's such a beautiful picture of what it's like to go to the lonely place. The idea here isn't that we're constantly running away from the world, disappearing into some sacred desert that becomes the only place we can hear from God. I want you to instead and picture a sort of inner dwelling place. This is the invitation of uh, Jesus in John 15. We were there just uh, a little while ago together. Remain in me and I in you. Abide in me. This is a a command to make an abode, a dwelling place on the inside I hope at least that part of that teaching stuck with you. And and here was the the, the main thing that I think the Spirit was speaking to us. Not only are we called to make a a home on the inside, an inner place where, where we can go to be with God. God also desires to make this place in you. Its origin is not in you. It is in God. Abide. The times of physical retreat serve to furnish this inner home with God so that we're not empty in the bustle of the city, readily filled with whatever it offers. I've been practicing this with my son with Moses. I don't want to wake him up. He's like in the back. If I say his name, he might. Um, That's my nightmare. I'm waking up. Um, I've been practicing this with my son. He's in that like developmental stage where everything is interesting. He's like, Like everything, his eyes are so wide. It's too interesting, in fact. Interesting enough to resist sleep until his eyes are heavy and he's screaming off his head because he's so exhausted from discovering that he has hands or whatever. Hands, hands, hands. I can put them in my mouth. That's him. So I rock him to sleep as he squirms and fusses because I'm not like, he's like, he's like, you're not my mom. You don't smell good. Um, And the temptation for me in that moment is to get really like frustrated and let it get my blood pumping a little faster and panic trying to figure out how to get him down as quickly as possible. Like, uh, I'm just gonna start bouncing faster. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) This is not helpful at all. He can actually feel that anxiety. This doesn't like go away when we're older either. People can feel our level of anxiety as we're talking to them, as we're interacting with them. So I've been practicing trying to go to that inner home with God as a 10 pound human uses his pants as a toilet in my arms. It's... um, 
It's beautiful. When I can remember it, this turns those like nap times where I'm trying to put him down into a sweet, silent conversation between God and myself and Moses who is sneezing in my face. <laughs> I'm, I'm abiding in God. Now abide or make a home in sounds very sweet and inviting, like a, like a crate and barrel advertisement or something like that. But for the early Christians, the go-to verse in reference to the practice of solitude and silence was not the warm invitation of John 15, remain in me and I in you. It was Luke chapter four. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Jesus is led into the desert by the Spirit and out there, the primary thing we know about that time is that Satan was out there. He went to be filled by the Spirit in the desert and then, boom, Satan. Have you ever gone to to try to deal with something in your life, maybe even go and get with God, and then like, boom, Satan. I won't get into all the implications there. I don't actually have time for it, but let's do this. Let's just, with me right now, can you just get both feet on the ground if you can, or, or just get comfortable in your seat? Maybe you were already comfortable, and then I just ruined it, but like get comfortable again, and we're just gonna accept the reality of this. Oftentimes, we go into those spaces, and we're met by Darkness, our fears. Take a deep breath into your belly. And a long, long exhale. In the quiet, in the dark, I'm met with all the things I've been distracting myself from. All of my patterns claw at me from the dark like invisible monsters. This is extremely frustrating. It's difficult. I go out to the Aramos to meet with God, and instead I find Satan. That's because the Aramos is the place of encounter. It's encounter with God and with the devil and with the reality of our life. Henry Nouwen's exposition on this solitude, he sums it up really well. Solitude is not... It is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born, the place where the emergence of the new man and the new woman occurs. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we become victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusion of the false self that we've created. Solitude is a place of the great struggle and the great encounter, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as a substance, the very essence of the new self. Even Jesus finds himself tested in this way, in the furnace, Luke chapter four, right? He's in the desert, led out there by the spirit, and he finds the devil. His identity is tested by temptation. It's not a glaring temptation to completely turn his back on God and give allegiance over to Satan. It's, it's subtle. No, Satan is actually tempting Jesus to take control of his own destiny without the steady hand of the father. He tempts to Jesus to do things that seem like they're within his right to do. He says, creator of all things, if that's really you, turn this stone into bread. Aren't you hungry? Like you're hungry, just eat. You're, you're human, you need to eat. That's, that's within your right, Jesus. 
He tests Jesus' identity, attempting to force him into defining it for himself by means of divine action. But Jesus is fully engaging in his humanity in this moment in order to actually be a high priest who empathizes with the people he's come to heal. He allows the Father to define him instead, replying, I don't live by bread alone. I'm here in the desert to commune with the true source of life. I've got bread you don't know about. He's trusting the Father to fortify him, to feed him in the lonely place. And the Father does, within 40 days, with patience, with time, with waiting. And, And when Jesus leaves the desert, he's headed towards Galilee and he's full of the Spirit. If we want to be like Jesus, a presence of peace in a culture of outrage and fear, we must follow him into that dark, silent, solitude, old place where we are fully human and where God is fully God. We trust that the Father will meet us there and turn us, form us into the likeness of his son. Ruth Haley Barton, who has a beautiful book, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, says it this way. In silence, there is potential for each of us to know that I am God. We just sang about this. Be still and know that I am God. With such certainty that the competing powers of evil and sin and the ego self can no longer hold us in their grip. All the forces of evil band together to prevent our knowing God in this way because it brings an end to the dominion of those powers in our lives. When we get into the silence, when we uh, put away all the noise that is grabbing for us in every moment, what's there left? What is there left but ourselves and God? What, What noise is there to try and pull us away? And so like Satan... And the darkness is like, oh, we can't let them do that. We can't let them get alone in the silence and meet with God. This is why you rarely find yourself alone in the silence to meet with God. Show of hands, how many of you want to experience freedom from anxiety, fear, and outrage? How many of you guys want that? No more anxiety, no more fear. Good, I'm hoping it's most of us. I'm hoping that's most of us. We, we can't do this without this practice that Jesus modeled for us. It's not just like, this is, we have to differentiate this from the, from the thing that's happening in our day where there's like, oh, you can get the Headspace app and feel really good and just sit down and you got that British guy talking to you, sit down and put your legs on the floor. And it's like, it's, it's beautiful, it's cool, but, but it's not leading us into a space where Jesus is, did I offend a British person in here? Oh, Josh Stanley, who's very from New York. He's not uh, British. Um, (laughs) It's different. The goal of silence and solitude is not like nirvana. It's It's not just to empty yourself. It's actually to fill yourself with the presence and person of God. It's not just to like feel uh, just at ease. It's actually to, to feel the presence of peace in your life. He's a person. And if you remember, one, two things about this and then a simple guide into our practice before we come into communion. If we remember, one, that God desires to make a dwelling place in you. If you've got notes, write that down. God desires to make a dwelling place in you. It does not start with you. 
Like you didn't, we didn't do this. We didn't conjure this up. Thousands of years ago, the desert fathers didn't go, you know what would be nice? We should come up with this thing where we go to meet with God and like get out in the desert and like, I don't know. It wasn't like this revolutionary idea necessarily. It was, it was something God had put in us, a longing to go and be alone with him because God's desire for you is so strong. It's so irresistible that we're like, okay, we, we find ourselves by looking at Jesus' lives in that place. It begins with God. Your desire for a peace that surpasses understanding has its origin in him. It's an inherited desire of the people made in his image and likeness, a desire to be with God. In order to enter into this practice, we must trust that God is stepping out ahead of us, preparing a place where we will be transformed. We have to first trust. This is the first step of, I want to I, I be free from the anxiety, the fear, the outrage of my day. I actually trust God. Sometimes that can look as tangible as like, I'm going to trust God by like, actually not like going on a rant, but instead saying, okay, my heart is troubled right now. There, there's something I see that I don't like that, that maybe is actually even injustice that you can move towards in the peace of Christ. But if you don't move with peace, it's very possible that you're moving in distorted anger and pride, the contempt that fills us. And you begin looking at the other as an enemy. And Jesus said the opposite of that. Love your enemy. How do you do this? This is not just words. Like, uh, it's a lot of the times this, is, this just becomes like an, an idea. Like, oh yeah, I love your enemy. That's so sweet. I, I, I'm here to tell you, like, if, you, if, you're, if you're saying love your enemy, but all you do all day is create rhetoric to destroy another person's uh, ideas, it's, it's not loving your enemy. If you, if you say, oh, I love my enemy, but you never sit across the table with someone from you that thinks completely different of you and doesn't even have maybe your moral uh, uh, values, you're not loving your enemy. You're just, you just have an idea in your head. Jesus sat across the table from people who were like morally contrasted to him. He sat across the table from people who were stealing money from the poor. He sat across the table from the poor and the oppressor. This is, I know this is like hard in our moment because there's so much injustice that's happening right now. And, and, and my heart is broken. Like I've cried my tears. I've seen the videos or whatever. Like, but then I, I look at Jesus's life and I'm like, dang, but he didn't, he didn't hate them. He actually invited them to the table. Maybe the poor is someone that's politically, the, not the, 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 your enemy is politically opposed to you. Can you sit across the table from them and love them and feed them? You can only do this from a place of deep inner quiet. You cannot do this in your own strength. Uh, if you do it in your own strength, you'll actually, it'll probably become twisted and become like this moral thing. Like, haha, I did it. I sat across from somebody and they didn't agree with me and it was amazing. Look what I did. It, it's not that. You cannot do this without deep inner quiet. Which comes to the second point. The peace you desire, it cannot be found without silence. It cannot be found without silence and solitude. For the person who thinks of solitude as optional, Henry Nouwen says this, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. 
We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside time to be with God and listen to him. This gathering, though beautiful and like keep on coming back, is, it's just, it's not enough. Neglecting intentional time in the presence of God outside of this time makes it nearly impossible to have a real relationship with God. It makes him more like a distant cousin that you talk to every once in a while because you kind of have to instead of, a, instead of a, a spouse, instead of being married into the kingdom. This is true of any other relationship in your life. Why would it be true of God? When it comes uh, to your time with God alone in the silence, allowing him to do the talking, allowing him to do the talking can be the difference between life and a kind of spiritual death. Right now in our cultural moment, and I'm wrapping up here, the world is dying that death a thousand times over, over and over again, neglecting being with God. The gods in our pockets, our phones, they're unlike most that have come before them. They're very different gods. They fooled a generation into believing that they are gods all their own. Like, it makes you feel kind of powerful that you can just access information at any time, that you can just talk to anyone, anywhere, whenever you want right now. We even have a thing called text that was invented so that we didn't have to, like, immediately get a reply. And what do you expect when you text someone? That they would immediately get back to you because it's made you feel as if you are a god while it actually masters and rules your whole life. The, the, the idol of, of, of our own godhood fans into flame the embers of pain and fear and pull us from the silence where we might encounter a loving God. Now more than ever, the world needs a people that are practicing a deep inner quiet. A deep inner quiet. We need a presence of peace in an anxious world. Do you know someone, how many of you know someone that's anxious? <laughs> how many are they anxious? That's me. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the person. <laughs> I think the Spirit might be beckoning you this morning again to practice this in your life. To, to take a, another step that maybe if you're in this room and you're like, I don't, I don't practice these things, that, that maybe I'm gonna try. Here's a, a, a real tangible, one thing and then we're done. This week, we're gonna practice together the Jesus prayer. Very simple. This is a very simple prayer. It's a very old and simple prayer. People have been doing it for a very long time. The practice looks like this. You're probably sitting down somewhere, hopefully. You're sitting down. Maybe you could lay back if you won't fall asleep. I usually fall asleep when I'm laying back because I'm tired all the time. Thank you, Moses. Um, in a comfortable space, and as you breathe in, you'll say to yourself and to God, Lord Jesus, Son of God, and as you exhale, have mercy on me, a sinner. And inhale, Lord Jesus, Son of God, and exhale, have mercy on me, a sinner. You'll sit down, breathe in deep, breathe out. Repeat this phrase in communion with God just to like see with compassion and grace 
for uh, 10 to 15 minutes. Five minutes isn't enough. That's when we just get all the stuff out that needs to get out of there. Try 10 minutes. I'm going to actually challenge you to do it at least three times this week. It's very easy. If you put down the other God that you have um, for, for 15 minutes, you can do this. You spend about two to three hours on your phone. Maybe it's for work, but like we do. We spend like two to three hours on our phone a day, statistically. So you can take 15 minutes of that time and go and get in the silence with God and do the Jesus prayer, both feet on the ground, taking a deep breath and saying, Lord Jesus, Son of God, and exhaling, have mercy on me, a sinner. Get into reality and do this with your community as well. If you're not in a community, Get in a community. Be, be a part of what's actually happening here, which is not just like a gathering where we talk for a little while. It's, it's embodied practice of the way of Jesus. And the Spirit comes and animates us to be the people of God. As we come to the table, I just want to say a prayer over us. Lord Jesus, would you help us? We need your help. The powers of this world, the, the things that pull us from all sides, it's, it's too much for us on our own. It is too much for us on our own. We need your spirit. We need your voice. Help us to fight the urges, the invasive patterning that has happened in our life because of the world we live in and go and get in the silence with you just to get alone with you, just to be close to you, just to be close to you, just to be where you are that you might crush the darkness, the brokenness, that you might heal the wounds in our lives as we trust you. Fill us with your spirit in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. We're going to sing together. So why don't we stand and then we'll take communion.